0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by physicist and mathematician Mark A. Peterson of Mount Holyoke College. This lecture, Galileo, Mathematics, and the Arts, is part of the 2012 Frankie Program in Science and the Humanities at Yale. I read a description of the Franke Program, uh, Innovation at the Juncture of two interdependent systems of knowledge. That's the Frankie program, and that is Galileo to a T. Now, uh, in addition to my uh, humanist scientist subject, I want to call attention to the method that I've used uh, to investigate him, and the method that, I'll, that in a way, is part of uh, uh, my topic. I could call it the method of mathematics in history, or just the method of mathematics for short. Uh, To put it in slogan form, follow the mathematics, the way way an investigative journalist might say, follow the money. It'll take you to the goods. Uh, Sometimes following the mathematics actually does take you to the goods. You have to be able to distinguish among different kinds of mathematics. It can't just all look alike, of course, like symbols and, and diagrams uh, otherwise uh, uh, not understood. You have to be able to know good mathematics from mediocre mathematics, or uh, things that look like mathematics but aren't mathematics at all, or things that don't look like mathematics but are. All those things can happen. But if you are sensitive to the mathematics of a period or a culture, uh, it can, it can be surprisingly revealing. And I want to give an example that might seem to be far from my talk. In fact, I, I may even seem to be rambling already, but I'm not. This is all, all tending one way. <laughs> uh, the, the best example of this method of mathematics in history, I think, uh, uh, was stated most forcibly by Lucio Russo in his book, The Forgotten Revolution, which I highly recommend. Uh, Rousseau looks at classical civilization, the Greeks and Romans, and uh, that, uh, that kind of amalgamated civilization with, with its two classical languages and their tightly intertwined histories, <coughs> uh, a civilization that even presents itself uh, to us in a kind of parallel. Uh, Plutarch's lives, you know, are are organized in pairs, as a Greek life and a Roman life, as if the civilization had a kind of built-in symmetry, and as if Greek and Roman were just uh, two sides of one classical coin. Uh, Even if you don't agree with that description, it's surely a familiar picture. Well, now we follow the mathematics. (laughs) What do you think? Greek mathematics is astonishingly high. We we still hold it in awe what they did. Uh, What about Roman mathematics? There isn't any. They they were so incurious about Greek mathematics that they never even translated it. So right away we see, uh, brought into a kind of high relief, a contrast that we wouldn't have seen otherwise, just by this method of mathematics. Uh, like a, like the stain that a biologist might use to uh, visualize structure in a cell, that what, was, what had been transparent and undifferentiated, suddenly uh, the structure stands out. I don't, I, I personally can never think of the Romans in the same way again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I inadvertently uh, used this method of mathematics long ago, before Rousseau's book ever came out, in fact. Uh, in in connection with a faculty seminar at my college, Mount Holyoke College, that was called Mathematics Across the Curriculum. Uh, started in the mathematics department, but uh, uh, we each teamed up with a humanist to create a module for those humanist courses, because we thought there must be uh, mathematics, uh, you know, across the curriculum. And, uh, and it, would never, it would never appear in those courses without some teamwork. And uh, uh, my team member was Angelo Mazzocco in the Italian department. Maybe some of you know him. <laughs> uh, uh, great friend. We had so much fun doing this <laughs> uh, because we thought there must be mathematics in the Italian Renaissance. And of course, we did uh, find some, and we created our module. but. Uh, it wasn 't as easy as I had expected. I had thought this would be kind of trivial mathematics, and uh, there 'd be nothing to it. But in fact, it was completely mystifying in, in many ways. Uh, there was just something odd about it that i couldn 't put my finger on. Um, thinking back, maybe I, I could say that there uh, a sort of frequent recourse to like magical things. Uh, And I gradually uh, realized, long after the seminar was over, that the reason for the oddity of Renaissance mathematics was that it was classical mechanics, classical mathematics. Sorry. That's my physicist voice. (laughs) Classical mechanics is one of our subjects. No, I mean classical mathematics, Uh, but inherited uh, after a long and complex history, there's the great Greek mathematics, which, all, which actually comes very early. And then there was the long Roman period uh, that was, from the point of view of mathematics, a kind of degeneration. Greek mathematics even didn't keep up the old uh, uh, standards. And the whole, subject, the whole subject of mathematics became uh, overlaid. Is that the right participle? Uh, with uh, philosophical uh, preconceptions that limited it and uh, and defined it in in strange ways, having probably little to do with with what it had been originally for the Greeks. And the main the main uh, characteristic that it took on was a kind of moral perfection. Mathematics was good for you morally. It was perfect. It was eternal. Uh, the way the heavens are perfect and eternal. So among the many strange things that that are often not stated explicitly but you gradually figure out, mathematics and astronomy were basically synonymous, Uh, and and also with astrology. I mean all those words could be used more or less interchangeably in the Renaissance. Uh, A mathematics professor at a university taught astronomy, and uh, (coughs) that was because being Perfect and eternal, mathematics only dealt with perfect and eternal things. And uh, so it was just common sense, so much so that you wouldn't even say it, that mathematics couldn't describe uh, things on Earth because on Earth, you know, things are very imperfect and not at all eternal. Things on Earth decay and die. and uh, and have none of the characteristics of mathematics or completely incompatible with mathematics. So a mathematical description of things on Earth, what we would now call physics, uh, was, um, you just, you couldn't even imagine it, I I guess. I mean, I'm I'm trying to think myself into that frame of mind. That's that's what I uh, did for a year, is try to figure out what, how does this look to them? And as I did this, uh, it uh, occurred to me that these texts that I was looking at were not that far removed in time from Galileo. But Galileo's mathematics had never given me that impression. Galileo seems quite sensible. Uh, nothing strange about him. So this, uh, this method of mathematics had, had really focused my attention on him. What was it about his mathematics that was, that made, that was different and that made him different? Uh, and, and since the questions you ask uh, largely determine the answers you get, I should point out that I'm going to be describing a pretty unfamiliar Galileo because uh, it's, it's not usual to ask this question about Galileo. Why was his mathematics different? I doubt that you've ever thought about that. <laughs> <coughs> But uh, this was, this was my, uh, my way in to this topic. And having focused attention on, on this question, I found a really startling answer. That is, when you, when you ask what happened uh, with Galileo and mathematics, the answer is something pretty amazing. Uh, Galileo's education was in Latin and uh, literature, the humanities, the arts, drawing, Uh, Music, his father taught him the lute. His father was a well-thought-of musician. Philosophy. Eventually, he uh, was sent to study medicine at the University of Pisa. And it was only there that he ran into mathematics, apparently. This seems almost impossible, but there's more than one source, and they all seem to agree. He discovered mathematics at a rather uh, late stage, in his education and became totally smitten with it and dropped out of the university to read Euclid and Archimedes on his own. Not a very uh, uh, good strategy professionally, perhaps. That was in about 1585 on his own. In 1589, He was appointed professor of mathematics at Pisa, the very university that he dropped out of. So what happened? Those four years must be pretty interesting, don't you think? (laughs) Something pretty amazing happened. And although there's not that much documentation, we don't really know where he was necessarily for most of that time, probably at home. we don't necessarily need it because we know what he was doing. He was reading Euclid. He was reading Archimedes. We have those texts. We may have read them ourselves. He was integrating it all with, uh, with his previous education, the arts, the humanities. Uh, and uh, we, c- we can know much of uh, what he knew about that, too. So we can sort of put it together, I think. And by the way, there is some documentation. Uh, Two amazing things. There are descriptions of two mathematical experiments that he did in this short period. Uh, Why experiments? Uh, Because he was applying his new mathematical understanding to what he knew before, the, uh, in particular, to stories, in particular, to a very famous story from Vitruvius, whose books on architecture were uh, uh, the, the best documentation of uh, Roman building practices and aesthetics. Uh, he, uh, he reconstituted, you might say, uh, a story, from Vitruvius. And this is a story that uh, you know, even if you've never read Vitruvius. And uh, I should almost apologize for what I'm about to do. Ready? (laughs) This is the story of Archimedes and the crown, how Archimedes detected the forgery of the gold crown. Now, uh, for anyone who was thinking about Renaissance art coming in here, this is an advertising copy from an American magazine in the 1940s. (laughs) And, uh, as I said, I should apologize. I was hoping I would get a little more of a laugh out of that. <laughs> um, the method uh, of the Vitruvius story is indicated there. You you dunk the crown in, just the way Archimedes has dunked himself into the bath, and you collect the water, and somehow that, how much water tells you what you need to know. Now, this, uh, I, partly I couldn't resist this picture, but. Partly, I think, it also captures Galileo's own reaction to the story. He thought this was pretty silly (laughs) and that that, Archimedes could not have looked like that and done that. That was not at all what Archimedes, that divine man, would have done. (laughs) Uh, What he would have done, Galileo uh, reconstructed out of two treatises of Archimedes, and then described in a little pamphlet that he never published, Uh, and uh, here it is redrawn in a a, a 1961 version. I don't know how much detail I should go into here, but uh, uh, Galileo saw this as a a much, much more like Archimedes himself. Uh, not to mention much cleverer. Uh, The idea is you have some sample, and you want to know its density. In modern terms, you want to know its density. So you balance it with a counterbalance here. Maybe I could use the mouse. Uh, Now you bring up the water. Oh, no, there is no mouse. Now you bring up the water, and the sample, because of buoyancy, loses weight. That's how he would have said it. So it no longer balances, and you have to move the counterweight in a bit and how far you move it in represents, visually, the density, that is how much weight was lost shows up as how much distance you move. So it's a, a little scientific instrument. And, uh, and it, it's independent of how big the sample is. It only depends on what kind of material it is. So you could do gold, for example, and find that you had to move it to E. Or you could do silver and find you had to move it to F. And now you do the crown, and you see that you have to move it somewhere in the middle, aha, (laughs) see? That's how he he would have uh, discovered that the crown was actually an alloy and was not pure gold. Uh, Behind that uh, reasoning is uh, one of the two treatises uh, is Archimedes famous law of the lever, which discovers a law of proportion in nature that the the weights, capital A and capital B there, uh, are in the same proportion as the lengths of the arms that balance. This is a a mysterious and wonderful proportionality in nature, proved very beautifully by Archimedes and, of course, used in that little apparatus. This idea of proportions in nature uh, stayed with Galileo all through his life. That's, That's really going to be my theme. And we see it right away in his first experiment, so to speak, which I hasten to remind you was not a physics experiment. It was an experiment into literature. It was trying to understand that story. (laughs) Uh, And that's someone who was very excited about mathematics. Where would they turn to see mathematics in use? Renaissance mathematics was not in use. It, it, well, in astronomy, it was in use, but anyplace else. Only a few stories. That's where it was, and that's where he went. <coughs> now, here's another story. Uh, the story of Pythagoras and the discovery of uh, proportions again. So same, same mathematics, abstractly speaking. Proportions uh, in music. Uh, this is from a book that was undoubtedly in the Galilei household, because uh, uh, Galileo's father was a music theorist who wrote extensively on, on these very things. Uh, <clears throat> uh, just to uh, say a little bit about what uh, this, the, the book itself is, uh, is far predates Galileo. <clears throat> But this this idea was was completely familiar to people of his time, too. Um, In the upper left there, those little men with the hammers are from the story of Pythagoras and the smithy. You know, Pythagoras walked by a smithy, and he heard the hammers, and he heard consonant intervals like uh, the fifth and the octave, and he rushed in. and. and weighed the hammers and found that when they sounded the octave, they were two to one and so forth. And uh, he went home and, uh, and did this experiment. He hung weights uh, <coughs> on strings. And, uh, and again, uh, uh, in, in every one of these, you'll see that people are, uh, are sounding the 16 and the eight, which are in the ratio two to one. They're sounding the octave. Here, this, uh, this sort of dulcimer instrument is being played on 16 and 8, and similarly for the flutes and all that. Well, that, now that I think of it, is an experiment we could actually do ourselves. See these glasses here? The 16 and the 8? We could just do it. And I even have some glasses. <laughs> there. And and I'll, I'll do this without spilling on the computer. Eric's computer. <laughs> There's 16. There's 8. Of course, it only has to be 2 to 1. That's the, the point of 16 and 8. There. So that is the 2 to 1. And so that should be the octave. So let's just hear the octave. Bum, bum, That's not an octave. Bum, 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 bum. That's an octave. Bum, bum. See, it's not. Just not. That uh, had been music dogma for centuries. I think I have to do something with this. But it was wrong. And that is something that uh, Galileo and his father found by experiment. In this same little period, 1785 to 1789, it was published by his father in 1789. So it's definitely right uh, in there. And what they found was uh, not exactly that this idea was wrong, but rather that it was more subtle. <coughs> you don't, uh, with these flutes, it's actually right. <laughs> A flute that's twice as long is an octave uh, lower. Uh, but these weights, that's wrong. If you double the weights, you get something sort of like the glasses there. You get a different interval. Uh, but if you quadruple the weight, if this is, I guess it would have to be 32 and 8, 4 to 1, not 2 to 1, then it's an octave. So there is a proportion in nature, a mysterious one, most mysterious. But. It's not the one that, uh, uh, that had been so carelessly accepted for centuries. That must have impressed Galileo no end. Uh, the discovery of a mysterious proportion in nature following a story, once again, the story of Pythagoras, uh, <clears throat> um, it's too bad that there's no explicit discussion of that in anything that remained, of his reaction to that. But I think that must have been just so exciting. Uh, this Oh, and uh, so here, I just put in words what I have already said, that uh, 4 to 1 makes the octave. And, and here, this is just to point out that some, some uh, uh, proportions are easy to see, like the lutes of the lutes, the frets of a lute are. Uh, placed so that you get the proportions that you want for this pitch and that pitch. Uh, the pegs, of course, change the tension, and you can't really see what the tension is the way you can see these. And that's that's where the surprise had come. Well, uh, here is an, another very peculiar use of mathematics in literature, and this. Uh, predates Galileo. So it, he wasn't the only person doing this, that is, following the mathematics. But following it where? <laughs> following it into the humanities, uh, into uh, uh, Dante's poem, in this case. There was a, an old tradition, about 100 years old by the time Galileo came into the story, into the picture. An old tradition in Florence of... Uh, uh, using mathematics to uh, discuss and comment upon uh, the divine comedy. And I only mention Botticelli here because he collaborated closely with Cristoforo Landino at uh, at about this time in uh, in a very sumptuous edition, which is the first uh, example of this mathematical commentary. And uh, Galileo was, uh, th- and this was undoubtedly part of what led up to his appointment as professor, uh, was uh, invited to give two lectures to the Florentine Academy on, uh, on a kind of mathematization of that picture that I just showed you. And, uh, and it's very precise, and, uh, and here I've drawn it carefully according to uh, the way Galileo uh, describes it, but, but he, uh, ascribes it to Manetti. This is, and Manetti was a, an architect of the 15th century and the biographer of uh, Filippo Brunelleschi, and a, a well-loved uh, citizen of Florence. <clears throat> uh, G- Galileo was asked to uh, um, to describe this to his audience, uh, not so much uh, to lay this all out, although that's what he seems to be doing. And that, uh, that by itself doesn't seem very exciting, does it? But uh, there was a, a strong political dimension to this, which I'm not even going to go into. This, this model had been attacked by Alessandro Vellutello of Lucca, who uh, ridiculed this picture. Uh, this is not what Dante's Inferno looks like, and he had his own picture. And so Galileo ridiculed him right back. <laughs> <clears throat> and that was uh, that was the real excitement of those uh, uh, lectures. But but in the course of it, he made a, a peculiar uh, statement that I'm sure this is a little bit controversial. But this is my uh, uh, I'm sure uh, <clears throat> that later came to worry him no end. Uh, the question had arisen whether the roof of this uh, structure would collapse, the roof being, being this part up here, which I didn't really show as solid, but that's the solid roof. I should have called attention to it in the, in the Botticelli uh, diagram too, where there's a nice grassy uh, crust on the surface of the Earth. Uh, <clears throat> you might worry that, that that could fall in. What do you think? Anyway, uh, Galileo argued that no, that was quite strong enough to hold itself up because uh, we know other domes, which are very similar dimensions, like uh, Florence's own uh, cathedral dome uh, that doesn't collapse. Um, now, you notice that in, in making that argument, he's assuming a kind of theory of proportions of things. If you keep the proportions the same, it will be the same. That's not actually true, <laughs> when they, uh, that, that this dome was buildable was almost a miracle. If it had been designed much larger, it wouldn't have been. Because things actually get weaker if you simply scale them up, keeping all the proportions the same. That was something that uh, I have argued, I won't go into any more detail about it than this, that Galileo realized soon after his talk, uh, which in the context of, this, of the political meaning of the Inferno lectures uh, really put him in a tight spot. Uh, it turned out, it never, it never act, his fears uh, never were realized, though. <coughs> uh, although he never stopped thinking about it. You'll, you'll see my evidence for that. Um, well, he became professor, as I said, uh, perhaps in connection with these Inferno lectures. And he spent the next many years uh, developing Uh, an instrument that had many uses. He called it the geometric and military compass. But it was, uh, among other things, a computational device for uh, computing proportions or solving the rule of three, which was the main problem of Renaissance Applied Mathematics. Given three things, what's the fourth one that will make the proportions the same? And here's how you do it with the, the military compass. Suppose I've given the problem up there. So how do you do it? You open it up using some ruler or other and measure 138 between the 400s here. So 138 is this side, 400 is this side. Now you just see how far is it between the 190s because you have two similar triangles. This is to that as this is to that because those triangles are similar and that solves the problem in a sort of analog way. And uh, so the same, the same mathematics that I claim uh, uh, he, he had used right from the start as he began to, uh, to develop uh, his mathematical ideas in new ways. Uh, the, the geometric compass was also a, a, a sighting device. Uh, it's sort of indicated here. You could hang a little pendulum and read off an angle, and that would tell you the angle that you were looking up. And so by various clever uses of similar triangles, again, that just means proportions, things in the same proportion. Uh, I guess what this is to that is this is to, well, you, you get the idea. You could use this to, uh, to do things that, uh, that were part of surveying and uh, practical was called practical geometry. And this is not a particularly sophisticated example of it. The, the uh, theory of sight lines that's being used here is, of course, the same one that was used in a much more sophisticated way in the constructions of linear perspective of painters. And Galileo was uh, considered an expert in that by his artist friends and, and also by his uh, by his patron, Guido Baldo del Monte, who consulted him on his own uh, text on the uh, perspective construction. Anyway, uh, my, my point is just how many different ways we see the same mathematics uh, appearing and, uh, and appearing in ways that are increasingly uh, physical, you might say, and are, are getting, moving away from the literary where it started. Uh, well, uh, I've made myself a little uh, memo down here, just to, just to remind you. Uh, Galileo had been an astronomer at this point for well over 10 years. As soon as he was professor of mathematics, he was an astronomer, as I said. But he never showed any interest in astronomy, whatever. <laughs> uh, for example, in this, uh, he wrote a manual for using this device, but he never mentioned sighting on a, any celestial object. Uh, I I can uh, augment that point. There's there's a very wonderful story from about the same time, which which I'm saving, uh, depending on time. But uh, let me just say it again. He was an astronomer, officially. (laughs) But that's not at all what he was doing. And so uh, once again, just, uh, just to reiterate, the way I'm looking at him shows him quite different from the, way, from the popular image of him. And I truly think that he was only interested in astronomy to the extent that he had to teach it, which, which he did have to do. But that, in fact, he was doing other things. He was doing this. He was using, finding proportions in nature. With his telescopic discoveries uh, just a little later, in 1610, and the Copernican controversy, and so on, we enter the the familiar story of Galileo, which I'm simply going to skip over <laughs> because i i I really think that that was a bit of a uh, an interruption in his career uh he had He had a hard time letting go of things uh so he he persisted in uh in directions that maybe were ultimately counterproductive. I think that one was. Because, and by the way, it has nothing to do with mathematics. His, his work on Copernicanism, there's no, there's no mathematics in it. Uh, whereas he really was passionate about mathematics. So that's another, that's another rationalization I give for simply skipping this well-known chapter and moving on to what came after. And uh, the most important thing that came after was once again an application of the idea of proportion in nature, um, <clears throat> now with no literary precedent to point to. This, uh, this diagram is supposed to show his final uh, version of the law of fall, which he understood this way. As something falls, its velocity increases in proportion to the time. So that's uh, what we have here. AB, that represents the time of fall. EB, that represents the velocity that was picked up. And then if you just draw parallels, you have a lot of similar triangles. So so every uh, look at this triangle. Don't be distracted by the rectangle, just the triangle. Uh, All these lines represent the velocities at different times. So short time, a little velocity has been picked up. Later time, more velocity. Final time, lots of velocity. Uh, It's just similar triangles. It's just proportions in nature. It's actually a graph. Nowadays, we do this without even thinking. It's a graph of v versus t, a physicist would say. But uh, Galileo had to explain what these lines were. Oh, over here is the distance that it fell. But as you see, that has no no obvious relation to anything else. At the same time, he had not uh, forgotten about those old problems. And they're still there. They're still in the same book, uh, Two New Sciences. Uh, Here's one talking about the octave again. (laughs) See the octave here, two to one? (laughs) He's uh, trying to think, why is two to one the octave? Because, of course, he and his father had, had revealed that. It wasn't that unambiguous. Maybe it was four to one, <laughs> if you look at the weights, or two to one, if you look at the lengths, and so on. So this is an argument that it really is two to one, uh, based on how long it takes uh, an impulse. This is pretty much what we, what, what we would say in a modern physics class, how, how long does it take uh, to, for an impulse to go down here and bounce back. And how long does it take this? Well, it takes twice as long for this one and that one. And so the frequencies are in the ratio two to one, and that's the octave, and so on. Anyway, still still concerned about that. That's, that's my point with this. Uh, here he is finally coming clean about uh, uh, scaling and strength. This is, this is the, uh, the argument why Manetti's Inferno actually would collapse, a thing he was never able to say in public, and doesn't say here either. He he makes no reference whatever to to the Inferno lectures where he first uh, encountered this problem. Uh, Rather, he just argues geometrically uh, that this beam here, which is taken rectangular so that it's easy to talk about its dimensions and its area and things like that, this beam <clears throat> and that uh, weight, if they were scaled up uh, uh, enough, eventually it would break, so making the op- exactly the opposite point that he made in uh, in the inferno lectures that under under scaling, things actually become weaker uh, <clears throat> and uh, once again, using arguments of proportion. Uh, well, now in nature. I think this one actually did come from, from an excursion into the humanities. It came from the Inferno lectures and, uh, and uh, a description of Dante. But, uh, but he doesn't uh, say that because by this time, he's, he's become independent of, uh, of his original sources, you might say. His original sources in the humanities are no longer no longer necessary for, uh, for the independent investigations he's making. Now, someone might say, I don't, I don't know if anyone would make this objection, but this is all after the trial and after he's under house arrest and can't, can't possibly uh, publish about uh, Copernicus anymore. Wasn't his real uh, passion Copernicus? And maybe he was just doing this. Uh, uh, because that was all that was left to him? No, I do not think so. And uh, as evidence, I, oh, sorry. I've, uh, this is <laughs> just to say in yet one more way, how, how uh, absorbed he was in the notion of proportion in nature. Uh, the law of fall involves proportions, but proportions of dissimilar things, velocities on the one hand and times on the other. What it means for two dissimilar quantities to be in the same proportion is a little bit tricky. We, don't, we no longer worry about that. We have ways that, that completely sweep it under the rug. But in Galileo's day, this was not at all obvious, and Euclid actually had given a very sophisticated uh, definition of what it meant for two proportions to be equal. And Galileo's last dialogues are about that. <laughs> well, and, and another one that, that uses the balance. Back to the balance. Now he's thinking of using it to measure the force of falling water. I, I'm not quite sure where that problem came from. Not, not from literature, though. So no longer from literature. Well. But as I was saying, it wasn't just at the very end of his life that he was doing this. Here, 1627, right when he was writing that great book, the one that, I <laughs> the one that turned, turned me uh, to, uh, uh, to a lifelong fan of Galileo when I picked it up in the Stanford bookstore, uh, the one that got him into so much trouble and that uh, <clears throat> took him to Rome for trial. He was writing that book right in this period 1627 but uh, from that period and and this by the way is from a year when when he was not actually working on it very hard and all his friends knew that and they kept writing him letters trying to speed him up or let him let them see some of it or things like that Uh, right in this period we get a very curious oration in praise of mathematics that's uh, what the latin Title is there uh, by Galileo's closest disciple, Niccolo Ajunti, who was really like a son to him. Their their letters, well, Ajunti's letters, because that's all we have. We don't. We just have one side, but Ajunti's letters are charming and funny, and affectionate, and uh, and you can tell that they're perfectly in tune. And uh, Galileo made him. Uh, professor of mathematics at Pisa. His old job, is his old first position. And uh, in, in that position, Ajunti gave this inaugural lecture in praise of mathematics. Doesn't that intrigue you? Doesn't it sound as if that would be pretty important <laughs> in understanding Uh, what Galileo thought about mathematics, say. Um, For very odd reasons, this book was not included in the collected works by Galileo's great editor, Antonio Favaro. There are 20 volumes, of which this would have been a very tiny piece, but Favaro left it out. Why? Why? I think because it just didn't sound like Galileo to him. He comments on it in one place, in a a little biographical sketch of a Junti, uh, saying, well, the best that can be said of it is that Galileo thought it worthy to send to Kepler. What, you might say? Sent to Kepler? He hadn't corresponded with Kepler in 17 years, and he sent him this thing. Doesn't that make it sound pretty important? But uh, but it was left out of the collected works, and as a result, no one has ever commented on it beyond that, as far as I can tell, and I've looked uh, as carefully as I can. Well, so what is this oration? Uh, it should be about astronomy. It's the new professor of mathematics, after all. That means astronomy. It doesn't even mention astronomy, or hardly hardly mentions astronomy. It's all about the mathematics of things on Earth. So I think even, even when Galileo was most absorbed with the uh, Copernican problem, he, he was still just as involved with what seems to me the real trajectory of his career. And I've argued that, that a lot of this was actually written by Galileo. He frequently published things over his student names that, uh, that we know he wrote. And so I, I, I think this is this not, not only should this be in the Galileo opera, because it's relevant. I think it's actually by him <laughs> to a large extent. Just uh, a, contra, a controversial point, of course. Well, <clears throat> OK. So I've uh, sketched for you a, uh, a Galileo who is uh, not the usual one one who actually drew upon his uh, education in the humanities and the arts, and really, what else could he have done as he discovered mathematics. And in uh, following the mathematics into these areas, gradually uh, developed methods that were uh, independent of, of his literary sources. It, uh, it it makes me uh, th- think that uh, one could really, with, with considerable historical justification, regard physics as a kind of child of the humanities and the arts, if this is really where it came from. Now, of course, that's not the way we conceptualize physics, but maybe we could. Uh, and wouldn't it make a difference that is uh, we might think of scientists as being a lot like artists, just in this, uh, in this medium. They work with uh, tricky materials. They hone their skills. They aim to create effects that will astonish and please other people, according to rigorous criteria of excellence. That, uh, how is that not like an artist? I just throw that out as, uh, as a possible direction that, that this line of thought could take us. I don't mean I don't to come to any grand conclusion, just to uh, uh, suggest a way. And since this is only the first lecture in a series that will be long and productive, I know, maybe I could stop here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This lecture was delivered on January 18, 2012 at the Whitney Humanities Center. The Frankie Program in Science and the Humanities at Yale has been made possible through the generosity of Richard and Barbara Frankie.